And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? <laughs> Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. This is our certainty in a world of doubt. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Temptation is what we're going to talk about this weekend. Satan went to church, and he, as he came in the front door, people were freaking out. They were uh, frightened, and they were jumping out the windows and running out the back door. I mean, he cleared the place, all except for one man who was sitting there, right where he had started, all cool, calm, and collected. And Satan came over to him and asked him, so you're... You're not afraid of me? The guy said, no, I'm not afraid of you. And Satan said, so why aren't you afraid of me? And the guy looked Satan in the eyes and said, because I'm married to your sister. <laughs> so, so I'm just kind of curious here this morning, how many can relate to that? No, 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 no. No, don't. I'm not going to ask you that. Don't. So, hey, take a look. <laughs> Sorry about that. I had, to, I had to start that one off there, so. So, hey, take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the introduction. You have an adversary, there's no doubt about it, and you are no match for him. You are no match for him, but he is no match for your Savior. Your Savior, Jesus, is both your model and means to overcoming temptation, as we will see in our study today as we work through these 15 verses. Now, let me bring you up to speed where we've been in this study thus far. Luke, for three chapters, has been amassing proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, giving us certainty in a world of doubt. And this text adds to Jesus' messianic credentials, revealing his character by showing us that he can conquer Satan and temptation in the most intense confrontation. And uh, in two weeks, we're going to talk, talk about the dark side. So we're going to go into a little bit more of uh, the, the demonic realm. And so we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it here today, but we're going to focus more on temptation, dealing with temptation. So you're going to want to come back in a couple of weeks to talk more about Satan and demons and all the, the whole dark side but uh, what we're going to look at here this morning is what is true about temptation. So our focus is on temptation. What is true about temptation? Where's the battleground? And then what are the weapons? I believe this text uh, answers those questions for us. And that's where we're headed. But before we uh, read this text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you join me? Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We worship you. No pleasure on earth compares with your boundless an irresistible love, and nothing is more life-liberating, more freeing than to abide in the truth of your word. Help us to see more clearly than ever the war that rages for our heart's deepest affections and loyalties. Only a heart fully satisfied in you will keep us from being led astray. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would this morning this weekend, open blind eyes and bring back straying hearts to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for our, for our indestructible joy and your indescribable glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, 
Amen. So there's, just before, uh, well, let me read the text and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple things to be thinking about. Uh, let me read through the text just so that you have a real clear understanding of the text. And then I've got a couple things for you to be thinking about as we work through the notes. Starting chapter 4, Luke, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, so here's two questions I want you to be thinking about as we kind of work through this study. You need to know this. If you don't know, if you can't answer these two questions, then you're prey to our adversary. Here's the first question is, when are, the most, when are you most vulnerable to temptation? When are you most vulnerable to temptation? When you feel like your guard is a bit down and more susceptible to him tempting you. And what temptation or temptations are you most vulnerable to? You need to be able to answer both of those questions. Otherwise, you're prey. He's going to take you out. Don't kid yourself. We all struggle with temptation. Everybody here does. It tells us in 1 John 1, 8, don't deceive yourselves. And basically, it says uh, that all of us struggle with sin. Don't be deceived. All of us struggle with sin. And so what sin... Or sins do you struggle with? John 10.10 says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's out to destroy your life. He's going to take you down if you're not aware of what's going on in your life. If you're not aware of where, when you're most vulnerable and what temptations you are most vulnerable to, you ought to be able to list those off. You ought to be able to say, hey, here's the front. This is what I'm currently battling. This is where God is leading me. Otherwise, he's going to take you out. I will guarantee you, he will take you out. He will bring destruction to your life. He wants to destroy you. You have a target on you. Now, if you're not a believer, he's already got you. But if you're a believer, he's coming after you. The Bible is really clear about that. He's going to destroy you. It also tells us, 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled 
and alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, as I said, 1 John 1, 8. And so we've got to be aware of these things. So those are the two questions you need to kind of be thinking about here this morning. So let's take the first uh, right here on our notes, first uh, question, what is true about temptation? It is the enticement to do wrong. So here's the definition of temptation. It is the enticement to do wrong with the promise of pleasure or gain. It is the enticement to do wrong with the promise of pleasure or gain. Here's another way of looking at it. It is, it is bait on a hook. That's probably a, a, a better even a better definition. It is bait on a hook. Now, no one sins out of duty. We don't sin because we have to. We sin because we want to. We do wrong things. We do wrong things contrary to God's word because it holds out some promise of happiness. Does that make sense? It's important to know that. So when people do the things that they do, it's because we want to be happy. And so we take the bait because we want that in our lives, not realizing the hook that's underneath. James 1, 12 through 16 gives us some really great insight here. Let me just read a couple of the verses, verses 14 and 15. He gives you really kind of the ideology of, of, of temptation, how it's working deep in our hearts. He says, but each person... So, so it's an individual matter, something you have to deal with yourself. Someone else can't do it for you. So each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. So there's the words, bait on a hook, lured and enticed by his own desire. That The word desire there is interesting. It's ep- epithumia is the Greek word. So it's, uh, the word means over-desire. So it's these things in your life that you feel that you can't live without. It can be good things that have become ultimate things. It can be a marriage. It can be wanting to get married. It can be wanting to have kids or how your kids turn out. Or it can be your job, your career. It can be be money. It can be a car. It can be a home. It can be any number of things. Good things that have turned into ultimate things. These desires. You could look at it as the, this is the good life for you as you have defined it. You you need these things. These are part of your identity, your security, your significance. Everybody has those things and those become epithumias. They become over-desires and those are the things that begin to lead us astray. And then he says, then desire when it has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it almost seems like for a season, yeah, it's, it's good, it's fun, it's, wow, let's celebrate this, and then in time, it destroys you. But how do we know when that sin is deceived, when that desire, desire is conceived? So then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So what, what is that? It happens in our heart. Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said... He talked about sin. He said, uh, it, it, says, it, it says in the Old Testament, quoting commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. What was he saying through that? He was saying that sin is conceived in the heart when we begin to entertain those thoughts. It's just a matter of time. You're going to be walking those out. So it begins in the heart before, it walk, before you live those out through your, your life. So sin is in our heart. We'll look more at that battleground in a few minutes. Where's the battleground? That gives you a little bit of an idea. Now, it is not a a sin to be tempted. 
It is not a sin to be tempted. That's the next point, because Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So, for we do not have a high priest who is un- unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us boldly come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. That's Hebrews four fifteen through 16. It was Martin Luther who said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from what? Anybody? From pooping on you. Is that what you said? Okay, they, they, can, they can certainly do that. Actually, that's not what he said, okay? But he said they can build a nest in your hair. You can keep them from building a nest in your hair, and if you, if you have hair. Okay, uh, even if you don't have hair, they can still come in and try to build a nest on your bald head. But... Uh, but he said, you can't, keep the birds from flying. you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your, in your hair. But what does he mean by that? You're going to have these random thoughts. You're going to have crazy thoughts, but what do you do with those thoughts? Do you entertain them? That's where when sin is conceived, when you begin to take those thoughts and you entertain those thoughts, that's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. That's, that's really important. And so, uh, the true God of your heart, you've heard me say this statement many times before, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. When you're free to think whatever you're free to think, where where does your mind go? What do you do in your solitude? So that begins to tell you what's most important to you. When I begin to discover that, that, that frightened me because I realized what, what was dominating my thoughts, what I was entertaining in my heart. So a thought, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. So it starts down in not just these fleeting thoughts, because we all get crazy thoughts, I mean, if I could read your thoughts and you could read my thoughts, we'd go, really? That's crazy. I mean, I'm just talking about fleeting thoughts, stupid things that come into your mind. It's what you do with those things. It's what you do with those things. How do you deal with it? And then here's the next one. Our temptations are never too strong to resist. Our temptations are never too strong to resist. So we're talking about what is true about temptation, kind of looking at the scripture as a whole. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So you might have thought that you are unique. No one struggles like you struggle. That's not true. He's just saying, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. (laughs) I love that. He's faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, give you a way of escape. That's what he says. That's his promise to us. He promised us to give us a way out. You're not trapped. You're not trapped in your temptation and your problems and your difficulties or anything that you're facing. God will give you a way of escape. Here's the next point on your notes. When we're tempted, what we do reveals who we are. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The word here, trials, also means not just hard times, but also temptations, allurement, to do wrong things with the promise of happiness. And so he says, you have been grieved by various trials, temptations, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though 
it is tested by fire and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's going to reveal something about you. When you look deep in your heart, what do you struggle with? It reveals to you something about whether or not you're truly trusting God, where you get your sense of, of fulfillment and satisfaction. Now, where's the battleground? Here's the next point. Every time you make spiritual progress, expect a counterattack. Every time you make spiritual progress, expect a counterattack. Now, did you notice that the context here, remember it was a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus at his baptism, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So that's Jesus' uh, spirit baptism. So uh, that, that's his identity. We talked about that being our identity, and then we looked at the genealogy last week. Darren did a fabulous job on a very hard text, and then, uh, and then now we move right into what, what happens. He's, he's being tempted in these verses. He's led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. He's being led right out into the wilderness to be tempted. There is a voice from heaven, and then there is a voice from hell. That's what you see in, in the sequence here as you read through the text of Luke. The voice from heaven only spoke once, Listen to me. The voice from hell speaks over and over and over again. So you can come to church. You can go on a retreat. You sign up for the class, good and angry. You come to Game of Life. You take our financial freedom class. And you're going to hear those truths that are so freeing only to go out into the world and be inundated with just the opposite of that to be pounded. That's, that's the point here. Every time you make spiritual progress, expect a counterattack. Every time you make spiritual progress, expect a counterattack. I mean, I, I just studying for this this last week, I took a beating this last week. It sounds crazy. Every time I deal with this realm and I start tapping into the spiritual realm, I, I just love the fact that many of you pray for me. I desperately need your prayers week in and week out. And it wasn't until I could kind of see more clearly was until yesterday, yesterday afternoon, or yesterday morning, actually. It was, we had a funeral in here. And I felt, I felt kind of for the first time, I mean, I continued to fight through it. There was, you know, and, and the enemy thrives in confusion and distraction, and you almost feel like there's just this heavy fog, and he's very oppressive. He'll try to oppress you, and uh, you just can't see clearly anymore. You, just, you don't have a sense of the presence of God anymore. And I, as I begin to battle that and fight through that, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about how you get through those times but it's, it's hard, it's difficult. And I, I feel it. I feel it regularly. And so every time you make spiritual progress, expect a counterattack. Expect him to come after you. Um, anyone who offers you a Christianity without a fierce fight is a counterfeit Christianity. I had someone uh, a few years ago write me this. They said... Uh, I was on Facebook. They said, you know, every time you preach on a certain subject, we experience it in our lives. Could you please preach on someone winning the lottery? <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah. Please. 
Quit speaking about those hard topics because we, we're getting hammered. So that just you've got to keep that in mind. Here's the next one. It is not fang marks on your skin but lies in our heart. So how does he come after us? Your car isn't possessed, making it break down, nor is your TV possessed, making you binge on Netflix, okay? That's not typically how he, it's not how he typically comes after us. Look what it says, Revelation uh, 12, 9 actually calls him the deceiver. John 8, says, this is our adversary, he is a liar and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Have you ever wondered why there's so many religions? Can you say angel of light? Disguise, Satan is disguised as an angel of light. Look at all the, the massive religions that are out there. We could go through a whole list. Islam, JWs, Mormons, I mean, there's just, you look at all of these different religions and uh, angel, uh, Satan disguises as an angel of light. Here's the next point on your notes. This is what he does. So we're getting down into the battleground area. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers and leads astray the minds of believers. This is what he's up to. So as we expose his work, I mean, he, he doesn't like this, so that's why he comes back with this counterattack. He's very subtle. He's for real, and you have to be aware of what he's up to. So he blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So we're singing these songs here earlier, which, which uh, Rachel did a phenomenal job, job leading us this morning. I thought it was awesome, and those songs were just absolutely beautiful, but that, that last song where it talks about his glory being beautiful, and the song previous to that talking about God's holiness, oh my goodness, what a sweet moment of just encountering God and knowing God. But to a non-believer, they would be sitting in here going, when is this song portion going to be over. That's nice and sweet and all that, but when is a guy going to talk and then when can I get out of here and get on to my day? Or I mean, you know what I'm saying? In other words, it's, it's almost kind of like trying to describe a sunrise or a sunset to a blind person. They have no concept. And so the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What you cherish, what you adore, you adore Jesus and his glory and all that he does for you, they, they, they're clueless. That's why you pray for people that God would open their blind eyes so that they can begin to see the beauty that you're enjoying. In fact, you feel bad for them. You're not defensive. You just feel bad. You can't see that? Oh, my goodness. There's nothing more beautiful than, than what, who he is and what he's done for me. But, but what he does for believers, he, he leads astray the minds of believers. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ Jesus. What is he talking about there? Pure, sincere, and pure? Sincere means uh, no, no hypocrisy, no pretense. That, man, you, do, you come before God and there's no pretense. You just, you open your heart to him. Sincere and then Pure, pure means uh, undivided. Oh my goodness, he's your most satisfying reality. You find more satisfaction in him than anything else. That's what it means. And so the enemy's coming after you and he's gonna try to get you to, 
to move your deepest affections and loyalties onto something that is in creation as opposed to the creator. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to lead you astray to make something in creation more desirable and more satisfying to you than the creator. That's where the battle is. That's where where you're gonna win the war is to begin to understand and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, God, you're more desirable. In fact, this is this beauty, this sunset, this sunrise, all the great things that we enjoy in creation is just a dim glimpse compared to what I have through you and and knowing you. Now, so lostness is blindness to the beauty and the glory of Christ. Being led astray is is really complacency about the beauty and the glory of Christ. So let let me elaborate on this just a bit here. How many are familiar with the uh, experiment, maybe you did it in chemistry class, high school, the frog in, in the kettle experiment? Uh, anybody know what I'm talking about there, frog in the kettle? Where you, if you had, if you had kind of a, a pan of cold water on a burner and it was cool and, uh, and then you boiled it, you turned it up really hot and then you tried to throw a frog in there, that frog's probably not going to jump in the water. It's probably going to jump out of the water really quickly. It recognizes, oh, that's hot. It's going to stay away from that. But if you were to put that frog in in a cool pan of water, and then over about an hour and a half to two hours, begin to increase that heat little by little by little. You can literally boil that frog to death without that frog ever uh, yelling out, whatever frogs do. And uh, that, okay, sorry, that was a bad illustration of a frog, but croaking, where well, he is gonna croak eventually, but, uh, but I meant croaking like, ah, somebody help me. And, uh, without him doing that or trying to jump out of the water. He's not, gonna, he's not going to. Because it's little, it's called the frog in the kettle. Some of you are looking at me like, that's gross. Why would you share that with us? That's not nice. It's that poor little frog. Well, that's what the enemy wants to do to you, little by little by little. And so oftentimes, it's not the big things. Nobody all of a sudden wakes up and they're an adulterer. They commit adultery, or all of a sudden someone murders somebody, or all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself doing things that are just unbelievably despicable. You don't just do that just overnight. It's step by step, little by little. The temperature is rising. You don't even realize it. I mean, I was thinking about that as it related to King David. King David, 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. Listen, to if you, maybe you're familiar with the story. In the spring of the year when kings go to battle, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof and he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. What's going on there? If you guys know the rest of the story, I'm telling you. What the seeds that are being planted in this man's heart at that moment, at any time he could turn away, but he begins to take one step after another step after another step after another step, and before long he has committed adultery, he's committed murder, he's betrayed a whole nation, he wrecks havoc upon his own personal life and upon that nation. It's horrible, it's horrendous what happens. And at any time he could have turned back, but he continued to take those little steps. He should have been at war, by the way. And he wasn't at war. And he's just lounging around the palace. Ooh, what is that? Oh, nobody knows. God does. Because when he repented, he realized that he put a dagger in the heart of his God. And he realized against you, you alone have I sinned. He began to realize that all sin is ultimately a trampling on the love and the wisdom of God. And he realized that he began to walk away from God little by little by little. 
We did a whole series. It was called Braveheart through Judges. Are you guys familiar? Remember the cycle that we saw with the nation of Israel? It's a crazy cycle, but this is the cycle that we all find ourselves on. And it always starts with, it starts really with covenant love. Oh, God loves me. He's my most satisfying reality. And then before long, complacency. Covenant love, complacency. What comes after complacency? Compromise. I mean, you begin to do things, you begin to say things, you begin to go places that otherwise you would never go. You begin to compromise, and then compromise brings chaos. It's just a matter of time. It invites chaos into your life. And then chaos, you're exposed in some way, and then you're crying out to God, oh God, I need your help, I need your help. And then he, he he would bring a judge, and then it was renewal, Covenant love, covenant love for a season, and then all of a sudden, what? Complacency. Okay, complacency, compromise, chaos. See, that's the cycle that we all tend to be on. You don't need to be on that cycle. Be aware of what's going on in your heart. Give him your heart's deepest affections and loyalties. When we gather together week in and week out, that's opportunity to do that. That he's our most satisfying reality. You need him more than anything. That's what will keep you from being led astray. Now, by the way, let me just say, quick, uh, quick ad here. Men's 33 class, guys, sign up. This is volume three, A Man and His Traps. You can sign up in the foyer for this class, but this will help you with these things that I'm talking about here. Now, Satan attacks our identity in three ways. Satan attacks our identity in three ways. So this is how he begins to lead us astray. So we're going, kind of going deeper into our heart here. And did you remember Luke three twenty two? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That should be ringing in your soul as a believer. But did you notice twice Satan says to Jesus in verse three and verse nine, if you are the son of God, oh, you're the son of God? Are you really the son of God? Oh, come on, you're not the son of God. That's really what he's doing. He's getting him to begin to question that. And so what this does is that, and you see it with each of the temptations, Satan attacks our identity in three ways. Mistrust the Father's love. You see that with the bread. Why are you hungry? You shouldn't be hungry. If if God really loved you, you wouldn't be hungry. Just turn this stone into bread. And then mistrust the father's hope or his plan. That's the authority one. Which, by the way, did you know that uh, Satan is speaking half-truths? Because he's actually saying uh, in here, he says, I can give you the authority and all all their glory. To you I will give all of this authority and their glory. This is verse 6 of our text. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Well, that's a half-truth. Because uh, evil... God controls evil, otherwise evil would be out of control on this planet Earth, and so the ultimate authority is is God. He's sovereign. So it's kind of half-truth. Does does Satan have some rule and reign? Oh, certainly. Whatever we want to give to him, to a certain degree, God still rules him and oversees that. It's called sovereignty of God. So he's speaking some half-truths here as it relates to that. And so this has to do with really God's plan for our lives or, or hope. And then mistrust the Father's faithfulness. Throw yourself down from the temple and God will take care of you. It, it kind of works like this in our life. When bad things happen to us, the first thing when we start thinking is like, if God really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. See, this is how he comes after us. So this is an attack 
on the three Christian virtues, love, hope, peace, or faith, hope, and love as it's described in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. This is what gives us a good solid foundation. Nothing will make you more vulnerable to Satan's schemes than to mistrust your father's love, hope, and faithfulness. Why is that? Because a lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. Now think about this. If you doubt his love, what's gonna happen within your heart? you're gonna have all sorts of fear, anxiety, and worry begin to take over. If you doubt his, his hope, his plan for your life, you're gonna have despair and hopelessness. If you doubt his faithfulness, you're gonna eventually become bitter and maybe even defect from the faith. And that's, what he, that's how he works. And what happens then, so we mistrust his love, his hope, his faith, his faithfulness, and immediately we have to find a substitute, and then this is what I've got on your notes. We look to one of these three things as it describes to us, these are the values of this world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, pleasures, possessions, and positions, temptation to make good things into ultimate things. These are all good things, but they become ultimate things in our life. And so I call them girls, gold, and glory. That's what they are, pleasures, possessions and positions. They're good things, but they become ultimate things in our life. They become pseudo-saviors, counterfeit gods, idols. Now, let me give you Satan's one-two punch. This is how he tries to completely take us out. You guys know what a one-two punch is? Sets you up with the left and knocks you down with the right. Comes around and knocks you out. And this is how he typically does it. It's temptation and then accusation. So temptation is enticement to do something wrong through overconfidence. He wants you to be overconfident and uh, playing down the holiness of God and God's plan, God's will for your life. And then when he tempts you to do those things, then he accuses you. Look at what you've done. You're not a Christian. Why did you do that? And that's what he says. What a failure. God can't love you anymore. So this is a lack of confidence and a playing down the love and the forgiveness of God. So temptation, so he tempts us by saying, oh, God's love, he'll forgive you, it's all by God's grace, but he plays down the holiness of God. And then he hits you with accusation, God is holy, but not love. One-two punch. We should take sin seriously because he is holy, because God wants wholeness for our lives. He wants our best for our lives. But when we fail, we should run to him and not wallow in our guilt because he is loving. He is loving. You can run into his arms of love. No matter how much we struggle with sin, our relationship with God is not based on our performance, but on the perfect record of his son. Thank God for that. It is our perfect Christ Jesus who saves us, not our imperfect faith or our imperfect obedience. Did you track with that? Do you guys hear that? I don't think you guys are hearing me very good back there. You guys, you guys still with me? Okay, don't make me have to come out there. How about over here? Okay, it's, it's, it's his, it's our perfect savior that saves us, not your imperfect faith and imperfect obedience. We all struggle. Look to him, fix your eyes on him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, what are the weapons? Here they are. Here's our weapons. Spirit baptisms prepare you for spiritual battles. Spirit baptisms prepare you for spiritual battles. Remember the spirit baptism Jesus experienced? 
That prepared him for the spiritual battle. And then, by the way, I read the, the last two verses of our text, and spiritual battles prepare you for greater ministry. So when you go through a hard time, oh my goodness, God is using that in your life. He wants to use that in your life for you to make an impact in other people's lives. And you're gonna become stronger as a result of that. And so you see this sequence. So your best defense is a good offense and a good offense is a heart fully satisfied in him. You need to have moments in your life where, where you experience deep in your heart and you hear him say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When was the last time that you had that sense deep in your heart that Christ became more real to you than anything? It's one thing to know that honey is sweet. Um, I put honey in my coffee every morning. It's locally, local honey. So I have an Americano and I put this big old bunch of honey and then I put a little cinnamon in there and top it off with a little cream and mmm that's good I like it it's good stuff and it's one thing to know that that's that's sweet to know that it's sweet it's altogether another to be ooh, enjoying it drinking it experiencing it to have that honey on the palate of your tongue it's one thing to know that God is good and great and loving and kind and thinks the world of you it's altogether another to experience it deep in your heart there's a difference you need to have those moments that's what prepares you for the battles of life that's what prepares you for the battles of life. Okay, let's, let me give you just a quick illustration here, hypothetically. You guys know the difference between God's omnipresence and God's manifested presence? Because I'm talking about God's manifested presence. You need to know his manifested presence. We all know that God is omnipresent. He's always present. You guys familiar with that doctrine? But there's also, when you study through scripture, there are times when God reveals himself. It's his manifested presence. And let's just say that there has been a multi-billionaire at every, at every service this weekend. In other words, his presence is among us. That would be kind of a, a good illustration of the omnipresence of God. But if that multi-billionaire, if he got up and began to walk around at each of the services and give to everyone in every service a million dollars, he would be manifesting his presence. He is making his presence known. Let's wait a minute to see if a multi-billionaire wants to manifest his presence here this morning. Anybody? See, it's one thing to have him in the room. It's altogether another to have him give you what others can't give you. God wants to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so when you have those encounters with God, it's not just the omnipresence of God, it's the manifested presence of God. He becomes, there's moments in your life where he becomes so real to you that it's, almost, it's indescribable. It's that indescribable, indestructible joy. And we don't have enough of those. But that's what I, I long for. That's what I want more than anything. And that's what prepares you for the battles of life. And so you need to have those moments. I mean, so here's, here's what I had to do this last week. This is what I've discovered. And, and I've taught you this, that when you walk into a room and it's dark, you don't curse the darkness. You do what? You turn on the light. Because light does what? It dispels the darkness. And so one of the ways that I, I get rid of the darkness that I feel that's oppressing me and beating the heck out of me is I get into God's word. I'm turning on the light, turning on the light. And I, and I listen to praise music. And I worship God because we know 
that God inhabits the praises of his people. We also know Psalm 100, it says that we enter his courts with what? Thanksgiving and praise. You want to enter in? And that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about this manifested presence of God. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing quite like it. I wish I, had, I wish I could experience more of it. So he's omnipresent, but you want that, that manifested presence of God. That's, that's what you actually see uh, Jesus experiencing. Here, here's the next thing, is that um, God's word will instruct you and the Holy Spirit will empower you. God's word will instruct you and the Holy Spirit will empower you. Did you notice that he's full of the Holy Spirit? But did you notice how Jesus responded each time? How did Jesus respond each time? It is written. God's word, it is written, it is written, it is written. So Jesus was saturated with the word of God. And the Bible gives us a lot of good insight. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it talks about his word, and then Philippians 2.13 talks really about his power working in our lives through his Holy Spirit. For it is God who works in you to will, gives you the desire, and to act, that's the ability to do according to his good purpose. Now, a quick illustration here. Who you are when your guard is down is who you really are. Did you know that when we come into church and we go to new social environments, we kind of have our guard up, don't we? Don't we hold our cards close to our vest, kind of like, hmm. I don't want to let people know who I really am. And that's what happens oftentimes in marriages. Uh, so when Nancy and I, when we first got married, she thought she was marrying a really sweet, adorable guy. And then uh, later on in the marriage relationship, the guard comes down and she realized that she married me, okay? And she, she got me and I wasn't as sweet and as adorable as I pretended to be uh, when we first got married. And, uh, or maybe it was the opposite. Maybe it was, the opposite. It, was, it was actually maybe her that was like that. No, actually, it was probably a little bit of both of us, but that's, that's what we do. We tend to guard ourselves. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? We, we tend to do that. And it's who you are when your guard is down tells you who you are. Now, think about that just for a minute. Jesus, 40 days fasting, hungry, having a difficult time, struggling, by the way, I forgot to tell you something at the front end of this is that one of the things that my wife and I have learned if we're gonna, and I asked you to, I asked two questions. When are you most vulnerable to temptation? One of the things that helps my wife and I is that we use the acronym HALT. You guys familiar with the ac acronym HALT? H-A-L-T. Don't ever let yourself get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, and too tired because it makes you vulnerable to temptation. And by the way, temptation is more than just the big sins that we often talk about, sex, money, power, alcohol. It is also worry and ingratitude and unforgiveness and bitterness and discontentment. Those are the things that oftentimes we're vulnerable to and we can be tempted to, to become. And so in this, Jesus is, is really, I mean, he's, his guard is down. And yet what comes out? The word of God. I mean, he, it's, just, it's, it's almost instinct. It's second nature to him. And you guys know what I mean when I say second nature? How many have ever done this before? You go to work and you have, you have really a bad 
interaction with maybe your boss or coworker, and the day's over and you're just glad it's over and you get in your car and you drive all the way home and you're doing these brain debates in your head all the way home and then you're, as you're pulling into the driveway you realize, I don't even remember driving. Anybody re- know what I'm talking about like that? You guys are scary drivers. No, that's how we all drive. It's called instinct. It becomes second nature because you've been doing it for so long. It's just second nature. This is what you need. You want God's word to be second nature to you. Boom, that's what it is. When your guard is down, what comes to mind? What do you do in your solitude? What you should be doing in your solitude is the the Holy Spirit. You're interacting with him. You're enjoying him. And his word just begins to flow from you. And when the enemy comes after you, oh my goodness, you have God's word. You're saturated with the truth. And the light of who he is dispels the darkness. Here's the last one. The power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. The power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. And do you notice each time he responds, he talks about, he's really saying, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is he talking about there? He's talking about interaction with the Father. He's talking about worshiping the Father, adoring the Father, having relationship with the Father, not testing the Father, but trusting the Father. That's what he's talking about here. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish mathematician and leader of the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s, preached a a sermon titled this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Let me summarize this. They say that this was probably one of the best sermons this guy ever preached, and I think it's the only sermon that people ever read of him. And I could summarize the sermon in this one sentence. This is what it means, what it says. So this expulsive power of a new affection, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's good insight. Now, here's the, here's the classic DB story that I've shared many times before. I share this in our game of life all the time, so let me share it to you again, just so you know. This is a perfect illustration. Our, our oldest gr- uh, grandson, Braden, when he was two years old, when his parents would bring him over to the house, the first thing that he'd want to do, he knew where the toy room was, and so he'd immediately come through the foyer and go right down the hallway and go right into the toy room. And I'll never forget this. He came out one time with his arms filled up with cars. He's two years old. He's a boy. He said, cars. That's all he could say, cars. Cars, cars, and you could not pry any of those cars out of his arms. He loved cars, 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 and I'll never forget this. He came out of the the toy room, standing in the foyer kind of area of our house, and he did one of these cars, cars, and he looks in where we're in there talking in the main living room area, and he looks and sees something on the coffee table, and he goes like this, throws the cars down, runs over to the coffee table, and goes, candies. So what was that? That was the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what that was. So why would he get rid of those cars that he cherished so deeply? Because he found something new to cherish. And so when Christ becomes your most satisfying reality, believe me, those things of this world don't have a hold on you anymore. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon to youth, and pleasure of piety, 1734. Listen to what he says. We're almost finished. There is a powerful vice grip that sin exercises on the human heart that mere shouts of denunciation and religious scolding and the intimidation of church authorities cannot dislodge. 
The promise and allure of sinful gratification must be countered, must be overcome by the promise and allure of a gratification in God that is sweeter and more beautiful and more exquisite and more satisfying. The pursuit of God brings delights of a more sublime nature, pleasures that are more solid and substantial, vastly sweeter, more exquisitely delighting, and of more satisfying nature that exceed the pleasures of the vain sensual youth as much as gold and pearls exceed dirt and dung. Heavy. Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts for communion here this morning, Father, thank you. Thank you. God, may it resonate deep in our heart as it tells us in Jeremiah 2.13 that sin that sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Jesus, for broken, for broken cisterns, for broken wells that never satisfy. And even as David prayed in his repentant psalm, restore the joy of our salvation. Father, we know that David didn't sin and then lose his joy, but he lost his joy and he sinned. So may our joy in you be kept strong. May the enslaving power of sin be broken in our lives as we see and experience more and more that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than anything in life, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We've got three stations.